Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. Today on Future Hindsight, we're talking to political science professor Richard Betts. He's the director of the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies and the director of the International Security Policy Program at the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University in New York. He is also an award-winning author and lecturer who has served the United States in many capacities on foreign policy and intelligence. I'm excited to have him on the show. Dr. Betts, thank you for talking to us on Future Hindsight. Nice to be here. My first question to you is about the uh, post-World War II international order and what it means to everyday Americans. Could you explain how you would think about it and why it's important to us? Well, probably the main characteristics of this order were after 1945, when the developed world was more or less destroyed, the United States became more thoroughly and consistently engaged in the politics and economics of the rest of the world than it had been historically, especially in Europe and, and Asia. And this meant undertaking alliance relationships with many of the countries of Europe that had previously fought each other periodically. Uh, but given the division of the world during the Cold War between the communist uh, world and the Western democratic world, united under American leadership, and also an economic order that gradually developed more and more uh, institutions uh, promoting trade and economic stability. And more or less after the Cold War, when the United States was pretty much the uh, primary country leading uh, world developments in economics and, and politics. What are the policies that came out of this initiative to be more active in the world order and creating a more peaceful world that you think matter most? Well, uh, since I'm primarily focused myself on matters of war and peace, I think probably the uh, single most important one was the commitment of the United States to the defense of Western Europe and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. Uh, that was a real break with American tradition. That was what uh, uh, Washington had originally called an entangling alliance, uh, and it uh, cemented the position of the United States as uh, a participant in and a regulator of European security. This happened in a different way in Asia, which didn't have a NATO, uh, but uh, starting with the Korean War, uh, involved the United States in alliance relationships with many of the countries of East Asia uh, against the Soviet Union and for a long time China until the Nixon administration. Economically, probably it was things like the Marshall Plan in Europe, uh, economic assistance programs, trade agreements, the development of institutions, ultimately like the World Trade Organization and so on. I think what a lot of people miss is that the Americans are leaders and that the system was largely created to benefit Americans. How would you describe that in terms of how it affects people every day? 
Trade relationships affect people by making consumer goods more efficiently produced and therefore more affordable by people uh, everywhere. Uh, <clears throat> it also has other, <clears throat> excuse me, other effects uh, which are more problematic, which we've seen as matters of controversy in the United States recently in displacing uh, a number of workers from lower-skilled occupations. So the, the effects are complex in both the positive and, uh, to some degree, in the negative directions. And managing the balance between those positive and negative effects is one of the major political controversies and challenges we face now. The other ways in which things like military alliance relationships affect people are not obvious at all from day to day except when peace breaks down and alliances come into play to actually fight wars. So most of the time, the, the effects of alliances in maintaining peace and stability are just background music that people don't notice any more than they notice the music in an elevator. Fair point. This leads me to a question about who sets policy because of course, you need expertise to recommend and set public policy and good governance. As ordinary citizens, we often feel powerless about foreign policy. How can we be meaningful stakeholders in this process? Well, the fundamental and most obvious point is simply through being uh, voters and supporters of uh, political movements that represent the preferences people have. That's not very meaningful to a lot of people because they take for granted the right to vote and to put one leader rather than another in power. Unfortunately, uh, in recent times, a lot of people don't even bother with that fundamental means of engagement. But historically, too, the United States has uh, been a country of joiners in various organizations promoting particular causes, uh, local or national, donating money, donating time for organizing and uh, educational initiatives, uh, lobbying with legislators, political activity, as well as charitable activities of various sorts. The fact that people join organizations like that and devote their time, usually volunteered time rather than paid time, the fact that uh, historically people do this in large numbers is, again, something we take for granted as the way society operates, but which uh, has, has not always been the pattern in all countries and is really one of the basic ways in which people indirectly affect these bigger issues that they don't feel much direct control over. So that makes me think about demonstrations. I was not alive in the 60s. Do you think there's a difference in efficacy of demonstrations then compared to now? It's hard to say because uh, they were on a different scale about different issues. I think uh, occasionally demonstrations can be very significant in highlighting dissatisfactions that politicians especially often don't take seriously. Uh, I don't think we should overestimate the direct effect of demonstrations on changing laws or policies and moving uh, politicians to uh, change directions in what they do. But it's primarily, I think, in highlighting the salience of issues that they matter. And they were more obvious in their effect or apparent effect, say, in the 1960s, 
because the issues were, in, in some sense, bigger issues, the Vietnam War, the civil rights movement, which is not to say that current issues are less important, but they seem less pressing to some people. For example, we don't have any anti-war movement of consequence now, even though if you look at public opinion polls for some years now, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan had become quite unpopular, but they don't touch people uh, to the same extent or in the same way that uh, earlier wars did, which were bigger and which also involved conscription and people's self-interest more than they do now. Demonstrations about economic policy, like the Occupy Wall Street demonstrations, brought attention to the amount of dissatisfaction that current issues uh, had thrown up, even if they don't immediately force a change in policy. I don't think in either case, 40-odd years ago or today, there are many cases in which dramatic demonstrations can be shown to have an immediate effect on policy. But in politics and in social change, a lot of important effects are not immediate, are not easily traceable. They can trickle down from a number of influences converging. And just because the connections may not be obvious or direct doesn't mean they're not important. I think this is a good segue to talk about the importance of public policy. There's a belief in a large swath of the population that small government is good and small government is the answer. They dismiss the importance of public policy. Can you speak about why public policy matters to our everyday lives? Uh, yes, and I should confess my bias up front. I'm one of those people when I hear the line, I'm from the government, I'm here to help you, I don't think it's a joke. Also, the skepticism about or uh, anger about government that has become more prominent uh, is, in the great scheme of things, somewhat new. If you go back to the second half of the 20th century, uh, there was a lot more not just respect for, but hunger for stronger role for government to deal with social, economic, political problems, mainly due to the Depression, the New Deal, and the, the view that uh, government had to do something to deal with the crises that came from the failures of a free market economy. Over time, uh, the pendulum swung in the other direction. Government did become bigger. Problems uh, didn't all get solved, and uh, politicians uh, of a certain stripe, like Ronald Reagan, became more popular. Uh, also, there's a difference in how much government seems to be helpful or a problem, depending on where you live and what you do. It's maybe understandable that people in rural areas see less uh, helpful effects from government in their daily lives than people in urban areas because of the difference in the complexity of urban life and the need for all sorts of coordination of things that is less obviously possible or necessary in other areas. So we have a complex society, but uh, wherever you live or whatever you do, if there weren't any government, you'd live in a jungle and it would be the survival of the fittest. Uh, which some people who thump their chests and like the image of the, the old Wild West and the ethos of the cowboy think might not be so bad, 
but which uh, in modern life could leave a lot of people uh, in deep doo-doo. So government in some form or other has to deal with those complexities. uh, And just because it deals with them in ways that sometimes frustrate people with inefficiency, waste, uh, mistakes, and so on, doesn't mean that they'd be better off without it. Yes, it doesn't. So what in your mind are the most vital government institutions today? Well, this is a question you can't separate from your own political uh, preferences and points of view. I'm uh, sort of... uh, uh, centrist, moderate Democrat myself. But that said, I think the most important institutions, apart from the decision-making and policy-making institutions like Congress, the executive, the judiciary, and, and so on, the most important institutions in uh, foreign policy are the departments that organize and work on national security and economic policy and the domestic institutions that work on providing a fundamental social safety net, such as Social Security and Medicare. And beyond that, most of the other institutions are either important or a problem depending on which side of the political spectrum you're on. (laughs) Yes. I want to return to the conversation we had earlier about the post-World War II order. Uh, As the world is becoming increasingly unstable, or right now it seems pretty unstable, which doesn't mean it's not going to change and become more stable, but assuming for now that it's going to continue to be unstable and potentially become more so, is there a point at which you think things are irreversible? No. I tend very often to be pessimistic myself, but on this I have to be an optimist. The world has experienced much worse catastrophes than we've yet seen uh, and has recovered and prospered again. And I think that's entirely possible now. It doesn't mean it will happen. It depends on whether uh, dedicated, smart people of goodwill will wind up collaborating and making the right choices or not. And that's a question that's up for grabs. But there are ways that present instabilities can be dealt with through negotiation or where negotiation fails through positive coercion, that is, good guys twisting the arms of bad guys. I think it's quite possible it will happen. And there's certainly a lot of pressure to make it happen because uh, a lot of people recognize that things are not going well and are going to be working to turn them in another direction. Uh, So if we have uh, a crisis, say, in Korea, it can go in in several directions. But that sort of instability, I think, means we have a big problem, and things are not going to work out neatly and easily. Uh, But I'm hopeful that they'll wind up better than they are at present, not across the board, but in bits and pieces. That is very hopeful. I appreciate that. I'm just keeping my fingers crossed. (laughs) I'm not making any uh, predictions. You're not making any predictions. I think we need to be hopeful. Otherwise, I think we can just stay at home. (laughs) That would be very sad. What do you think about the current state of the State Department, and can it perform its function in the way that it was intended? 
I think the current situation is tragic because there seems to be a, a real misunderstanding in this administration of the nature of the State Department's functions and the, the value of them. Uh, there seems to be a feeling that the State Department is full of people doing unnecessary things in the sense of the pejorative view of diplomacy as a bunch of useless cookie pushers. I can't see any other explanation for the commitment the administration has to slashing the State Department's budget by uh, a third and by failing to appoint uh, people to most of the important managerial and uh, ambassadorial positions. Whether this will change when the Secretary of State's big plan as yet not quite unveiled for reorganization, if that uh, pans out and makes a positive difference, although I'm skeptical about that, uh, maybe things will change. But at, at present, uh, the State Department is, to exaggerate only a little bit, being dismantled. And the consequences of that, unfortunately, may become visible in a number of places. There are a number of important countries where uh, this administration has not even bothered to appoint an ambassador. There are important regions of the world where we don't have appointments to the assistant secretary positions to coordinate uh, policy for those parts of the world. And that's simply a mistaken view of the importance of communicating with and uh, interacting with in a, an inventive and productive way with other countries' governments. Right. So can you name one ambassadorship specifically, just to make it a little bit real for our audience, uh, that has not been appointed and how it's affecting mm -hmm. the U.S.? Yes, although this may also be a hopeful note in that the, the one I would point to would be South Korea. Uh, reportedly, Victor Cha is going to be nominated and will probably be confirmed as ambassador to South Korea. Much too late. The fact that there has not been an ambassador in place in that country when arguably our most dangerous foreign policy problem has been developing over the past year is a scandal. And if Victor, who I know and respect and is an extremely competent uh, guy, is put in place very soon, then that will belatedly be a, a, a good recognition of how to solve that problem. So that's an example where it's been, in my view, an inexcusable danger left in place, but one where if we're, if we're lucky, they will finally get their act together. I hope that he gets confirmed soon. This is not asking you to make a prediction, but what would be an ideal scenario for how the North Korean crisis could be settled? Well, if you, by ideal scenario, you mean one that has some plausible prospect of being achieved. Yes. That's uh, a really difficult question because this is one of the few problems where I can't see any satisfactory solution, but only a choice among bad solutions and uh, a challenge of finding the one that's just less bad than others. Because it doesn't look like there is any American initiative that will get North Korea to give up the nuclear weapons it's developed. And that's worrisome because the North Korean regime 
may be the wildest, craziest regime on earth. And having nuclear weapons in that context is alarming. But given that problem, probably the best solution is a combination of measures to, well, first of all, undertake talks with North Korea to see if there are uh, possibilities that don't look very good now, but that might nevertheless be explored and, and deals which might make things come out better. But secondly, if negotiations are unprofitable, to combine measures to punish North Korea through uh, increased economic sanctions to show that uh, even if they keep their nuclear weapons, they can't do it for free, which may have some spin-off benefits in reminding other countries that might think of emulating North Korea that they may not want to do it. To combine that with traditional reliance on deterrence, the way we handled uh, the danger posed by Soviet and Chinese nuclear weapons during the Cold War. That's not ideal because uh, it's hard to be confident that Kim Jong-un and his cronies will reliably be as restrained by American deterrence as we hope. But uh, there's reason to believe that they're not suicidal and that deterrence will work to prevent North Korea from at least using those weapons for bad purposes. So that's not an ideal solution uh, overall, but it may be a good enough solution. Yes, it might be just good enough to not have a war anyway, that would be good, right? Yes, to start. <laughs> that definitely would be good. It would be good. What do we need to do as ordinary citizens, and what do we need to know to demand a more peaceful future? As an educator, I would say one thing that ordinary citizens should do is make some effort to learn enough to have responsible opinions. The only thing worse than not participating in politics is participating irresponsibly and ignorantly. So people should best do what's reasonably possible to keep up with what's going on and to think a little about it. And then secondly, to at least vote for whichever candidates come closer to their points of view than others. Uh, and beyond that, uh, if they're going to contribute more to this process, to become involved locally or, or nationally in uh, organizations that uh, promote solutions to public policy programs. So there's a whole range of alternatives from minimal to maximal, depending on how much people are willing to do. So I'd say the minimum in a democracy is people need to learn enough to vote responsibly and to vote. And the maximum is to roll up your sleeves and actually contribute hours to uh, promoting movements you believe in. Yes, that's good. Thank you for summarizing that. So here's my last question for you. What are you hopeful about? Uh, well, I warned you I was a pessimist by nature, but being something of a pessimist, I'm always happy to be proved wrong and, and sometimes am. So I'm hopeful that there will be smart people finding ways out of problems that are more creative uh, than have occurred to me in some cases. And that's entirely possible. This country and, and other countries in the world have a lot of smart, dedicated people. And the, the odds that they'll 
find new and productive ways to deal with some of these exacting problems uh, I'm fairly hopeful about. To be more specific, it's a little hard right now because, to be honest, things seem pretty bad to me at the moment. But I'm hopeful, for example, that the wave of opposition to participation in certain cooperative enterprises abroad will crest and that the swings in public opinion that we see historically will swing back in a, in a more positive direction. And I think that's possible because it doesn't take much for people to see that simplistic slogans and simplistic solutions that candidates throw out never pan out and that in real life, things are always more complicated and messier than we like and that uh, solutions have to be found to compromise. I'm hopeful that the polarization that has occurred in American politics, which I think is very damaging, being a moderate myself, I, I'm hopeful that that polarization may have peaked. Now, I'm not sure about that. It's entirely possible that the extremism of the Trump end of the uh, political spectrum could provoke extremism uh, at the, the left end of the Democratic Party, and I'm not sure that that would be a, a tremendous improvement. But I'm hopeful that that won't happen and that polarization uh, will decline and that uh, there will be a movement to find more, more bases for compromise. And without compromise, uh, we're just going to have more destructive conflict, more paralysis, more dictation of a slim majority to a large minority. So I'm hopeful the compromise will come to the fore again. But it's not going to happen automatically. We're all going to have to try to make it happen. Yes, we do. Thank you very much for this conversation, Dr. Betts. Richard Betts is the director of the Saltzman Institute for War and Peace Studies and the director of the International Security Policy Program at the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University in New York. Thank you. You're welcome. Although Dr. Betts was hopeful about the situation in North Korea, it turns out that the person he thought would become the next ambassador to South Korea is no longer considered for that position. On January 30th, Victor Cha was withdrawn as a candidate after he disagreed with the White House's foreign policy regarding North Korea. Mr. Cha published an opinion piece in the Washington Post which outlines his alternative strategy to coerce Pyongyang to denuclearize with enhanced and sustained U.S. regional and global pressure. He argued that a preventive military strike against North Korea could spiral into a war that could kill hundreds of thousands of Americans living in South Korea and Japan, not to mention the risk of a nuclear warhead striking America. Let's think about that for a minute. How does it serve American citizens to abandon an expert on the region because he's an advocate for diplomacy? I find it difficult to be hopeful in the current climate of opposition to international cooperation and domestic political polarization. I agree with Dr. Betts that the polarization in American politics is damaging and that compromise is not going to come about on its own. We all have to take part in making it happen. How can we demand good governance and peace for all Americans? 
Government cannot solve all of society's complex problems, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't try. Let's take to heart the words of Dr. Harcourt and contact our representatives directly. Start the conversation. If our elected officials don't align with our values, let's follow Dr. Betz's advice going forward and vote for candidates who come closest to our points of view. On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Dr. James Doty. He's a neurosurgeon at Stanford University and the founder and director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. He's also the author of Into the Magic Shop, in which he writes eloquently about how living with an open heart gives you hope and changes your perspective. All of us have a shadow. All of us have a dark aspect of ourselves. All of us uh, uh, have things that we would prefer not to talk with others about because they are dark and and, uh, we haven't resolved them and we live with them. But it doesn't mean that overall you're not a wonderful, blessed, great person. And this is a burden that each of us carries. But the part that you're beating yourself up about might make up 1% and you're focused on that and not looking at the 99%, which is beautiful, wonderful, caring, giving, and has the potential to change the world and to change every life around yourself. And when you change that way you look at the world, then the world changes the way it interacts with you. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Feda. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumu. Find us online at futurehindsight.us and listen to us through your favorite streaming services.